A lot of people, a lot of listeners, you're a people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser. It helps you assimilate the tribes. It's a good thing that you're a people pleaser. But the key is you've got to learn to say no to most things. Because if you're saying yes to everyone, you're essentially saying no to everybody. Because you're not going to be able to give your full self. So if you say yes to everything and everyone, honestly, you're saying no to everybody. Because you're not going to be able to do your best because you spread yourself too thin. So think of a mindset of a surgeon. They're only allowed to work certain hours because at a certain point in time, they become a detriment to the patient. And so you gotta think of your time like a surgeon that you only have so many yeses. So you really wanna protect those yeses for the big thing. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. What's holding you back from focus? Now, most of us would have started this year with hopefully some clarity on what we want to set into motion, the goals we want to kick, the freedom we want to create, the impact and influence that we want to build. And yet, what have I told you that the key to achieving any of those intentions actually lied in a commitment to doing less rather than more? My guest today is the king of getting maximum impact with minimum distraction. Eric Cuomo is a five times number one best-selling author and speaker, having performed in over 55 countries and reached a grand total of over 50 million people. His books, number one, Social Nomics, How Social Media Transforms the Way We Live and Do Business. Number two, Digital Leader, Five Simple Keys to Success and Influence. And his latest, number three, The Focus Project, The Not-So-Simple Art of Doing Less. They have all been on the CEO list of must-reads pretty much since their published date. He was also, little known fact, voted the second most likable author in the world behind Harry Potter's J.K. Rowling. No small feat. You know, Eric's work first caught my attention a few years ago, when a video that he had created seemed like it was just everywhere. It was being played on loop by every influencer, industry expert and CEO that I know. Literally every conference I attended or spoke at, somebody played Eric's video from the stage. Now that video was called Socialnomics and it was a viral video trailer for what would become his best-selling book of the same name. It was a two-minute visual feast with a killer soundtrack detailing everything that you need to know and couldn't have imagined or basically, you know, couldn't get your head around about the rise of social media. Now, if you haven't seen it, or you want to see a book trailer that literally created a bestseller, check it out in Google. Just type in socialnomics, it'll be the first one to come up. So, needless to say, I tracked him down and I convinced him to let me pick his brain. 
In this conversation, we dive into how he created socialnomics and the keys to using content for massive cut through. Here's the hint, has a lot to do with making the complex simple. The story behind his legendary lime green glasses. Um, For those of you who know him or know of him, you'll know exactly what I mean. And why stepping into his story rather than avoiding it was the most powerful thing that he did when it came to standing out. Why he wrote The Focus Project as the, as he terms it, anti-venom to his first book. A journey that began when he noticed his own inability to focus in a world of social media and digital distraction and exactly what he decided to do about it. What's on his not-to-do list right now? I highly suggest you add this to your list of questions for successful people if you ever sit down with anyone. You can learn way more from learning what it is that someone is committed not to doing than what they're hoping to attempt. And finally, the advice he gives his own children about how to manage their focus and make a mark in a world of never-ending distraction. Now, the biggest piece of gold I got out of this conversation was one question. And it's one question that I have since repeated to a number of people in my inner circle who are just looking for some more clarity at the moment. And that question is this. What's the one thing that if I do it well, will make everything else easier or not necessary? What's the one thing that if I do it well, will make everything else either easier or not necessary? If you answer that question, then you need to focus like your life depends on it. On a quick note, you will notice that the sound quality in some of Eric's answers struggles in a few places. You know, we do our best every time to pick up on sound issues, prevent them and correct them when we can. Thank you, John, our amazing editor. However, sometimes we just have to go with what we have because the content is just way too powerful to lose. Believe me on this one, it's worth working through it on a, on a few little sections. So, stride on, cycle out, drive safe, or just plug in and let the world do what it does for a while and enjoy the unique brain that is Eric Qualman. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Qualman. So lovely to have you here. Lovely to be here. Really happy to join your listeners. Well, I was saying briefly before we went on air that I first came across you and your work, I don't know how long ago, probably I would say eight or nine years ago through the socialnomics videos that you that you produced. And I think you produced at that stage anyway, one annually that was kind of a roundup of the year in terms of everything that we needed to know from a social media standpoint, stats, trends, what's happening, some funny facts. But the way that you did it just really cut through like I remember in my industry which is you know there's a lot of speakers a lot of influencers a lot of talent agents your videos just came through like wildfire it was like you managed to tell that story in two minutes in a way that no one else had really been able to tell that story before so I wanted to kick off with how did you how did you start out like how did socialnomics come to be and then we can talk about how you came to tell the story No, it's a great question. So my background, I fell in the tech industry before everyone was in tech. And literally, I was an internet Cadillac and these things called websites had started. They're like, you're young, go figure out what this website is. And fortunately at the time, it's pretty easy HTML. It's just basically PDFs 
online, but I'd always been in the tech space. So when social media came out, I started to see this thing and I'd see my cousin who was 21 had to get on this thing called MySpace and I'd watch her and I started to realize, holy cow, this is the next thing. Like this is, before that it might've been search was a big thing. Before that was e-commerce was a big thing. Before that, the websites were a big thing, the internet itself. I go, this is the next thing. This is gonna revolutionize the way we communicate. But at the time, most people thought, no, this is just a teenage toy. And so as I talked to CEOs, I had a marketing at Travel View at the time. And so like, we gotta invest in this, guys. We, we're spending 50 million on search, but really we need to adjust and put all of our eggs in the social media basket, a lot of them, because this is gonna change the world. And no matter what CEO I was talking to, they thought it was just teenage stuff. So after an hour of speaking with them, they're like, oh, I kind of get you saying, Eric, I'm bought in, but they wouldn't take any action. So then I realized I've got to come in stronger. I've got to put together a video. I'm going to tell them the story through video in two minutes. That's just going to shock them. And that was what it was made to do. And then all of a sudden we put it on YouTube and it went massively viral because it turns out that everyone <laughs> was trying to figure out what this social media was. And since it was to good music, it was in two minutes, it just made it simple to realize I've got to take action. Okay, yeah, this thing is huge and I've got to take action. So that's how it started. It's funny because the book Socialnomics, in the video itself, I don't really talk about the book Socialnomics, but with the publisher, they go, I don't understand how this video is supposed to sell the book. And I go, it will long-term. And they go, but it doesn't talk about you in the video or the book. It's not telling them to buy the book. I go, yeah, because nobody would watch that. I go, this is trying to provide value to the user that needs to know what social media is and they need to take action. And they go, I still don't get it. I'm like, did you actually read the book? Because <laughs> that's what the whole book's about, is how to use social media to, and you got to tell a story first and not sell yourself first. But provide value so that's the whole impetus i had no no idea that thing that thing went massively viral so they get these media outlets calling me all the giant media outlets were calling me at the time and so it was, it was crazy it was crazy there's a few things i really want to highlight in there you know number one was you saw a trend coming arriving and you tried to explain to everybody what was going on and i think for anybody that's listening you know we've all had those moments where you can see something coming and you're trying to explain that this is happening and we need to take action and we need to take action quickly. And usually what happens in those moments when you're trying to pitch somebody who's got a thousand things burning right now that they have to deal with. And when you're, you know, when you're telling them that I can just smell smoke on the horizon, they're like, look, I don't like there are things literally burning in front of me. But rather than back off then and just kind of, you know, throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, nobody's into it, nobody cares. You did the one thing that I always try and coach people to do, which is you put on your translator hat and your epic storyteller hat. And you were like, right, I need to translate this problem in a way that they understand in a time frame that they can digest using language that makes sense. And I need to do it in an epic storytelling kind of a way that's really going to make an impact. And literally for anyone who's listening, you know, go check out these videos because I have I've given them to CEOs before and I've watched CEOs get up on stages and play your videos before they talk to their teams just to highlight the changes in the digital landscape. What do you what do you look for? Because I know you do these videos for lots of organizations now. 
when they come to you and say that we have this big complex beast that we're trying to get cut through with, what are you looking for when you put together these short bite videos? What I'm looking for is to answer the question, so what? So what? And whenever you give a keynote on stage, I even almost say this out loud to the audience. Hey, you guys had fun. You're entertained. But so what? What am I supposed to do with this information? And so that's why I always want to get to the core, whether we're working with an IBM or Disney, is so what? So what? What do I need to get, get the essence uh, and help break through the clutter? So that's the key is you got to make sure that everything in that 90 seconds to two minutes is answering the question around the so what? So that someone actually stands up and, and takes that action. Uh, it's funny because you mentioned the video. It was crazy. I'd see on Twitter, if I have to see Eric Quammen's video one more time to start a conference, I am going to get sick. You know, that was kind of funny. That's like, you're laughing. You just, or people are texting me that knew me. They're like, I'm in Australia. And your name just came up on the screen in this video. Uh, so it was kind of funny just to see that it was being used so often. Um, but funny story about us doing videos for other folks is literally I got a phone call that said, hey, do you do these for the organizations? And I'm Mr. Green Jeans. I go, no, I just did it for this one time. I just put it together. And then the second call comes in. They're like, hey, do you do this? I'm like, no, no, no. I just did it for myself. And then the third time I finally got wise and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we could do that. We'll do that. We'll, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We've got a product guys. just here for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. We've got a whole studio. We're ready to go. Let's make it happen. What's been your... Um... What's been your favorite project to work on from a, from a storytelling standpoint when you when putting these together? I know it's not all you do, but I'm just fascinated by this facet. Yeah, yeah. From the animation studio side of things, it's just the, the time I almost fell out of my chair and dropped the phone was when Disney called. Because I'm going, well, why don't you have the Pixar guys do it? I don't understand. <laughs> like we're a boutique animation. It, and then it made sense because I'd worked at big companies before and they said, well, the Pixar guys are going to charge us internally, so it's going to be more expensive, but mostly that's going to be a two-year wait list to get them to do anything. And also, we want an outside voice. So obviously, you're an expert storyteller. A lot of times, it's hard to see you know, the picture when you're inside the frame. And so it's really about getting that outside script writer to go, that's not important. I know you love that because you worked on that product, but no one cares about that outside of your organization. This is what they care about. This is the so what. And so that was a really cool project to work on. And then it went a little deeper than that because whenever you work on some of these animation pieces, it, it, it uncovers some bigger issues that might be at that organization. So for example, at Disney, they're, they're starting to, at the time they're wrestling with all this technology change and they wanted us to show that they're actually a digital company, that they had these magic passes that you could actually have a, a wristband and, and it would open your door. You could charge food to it. You know, you could get your photo pass that they were a very digital company, which they were. But then on other sides of the coin, they're wrestling. So, for example, most of you listeners out there, you've been to, to Disney World. When you get to Disney World, you're going to take that iconic photo in front of Cinderella's castle. Well, historically, that's a professional Disney employee that's taking that photo. That photo is going to cost you $25. It's well lit. Boom, you've got it. Well, now everyone has these really high level HD cameras. They come in to the park. So now there's a potential issue because they're wrestling with, wait, are we going to cannibalize this product? 
that everyone's trying to get a picture in front of their castle, but now it's messing up our pro professional photographer. Should we ban phones in the park or ban phones in that area? Because sometimes there's a problem on the ride. And so then I'm working on this animated piece, but since I was physically in Orlando at the time, they go, well, let's bring this guy down. He's external. Because I was doing a lot of digital coaching at the time as well. So I just walked down there and I go, well, I go, we can talk about hours and have good arguments. But at the end of the day, Disney, it's like, what does the customer want? You all, how many of you have kids? Everyone raises their hand. I'm like, all right, you're in the park. This is pretend you don't work for Disney. You come to the park. Do you want that picture in front of the castle? Do you want to take it with your phone? Don't you, that's what you want to do, right? And they're like, yeah. I go, how'd that experience be if you weren't allowed to use your phone or weren't allowed to use it in that area? And they're like, oh, that makes sense. Then the lawyers pipe up because then it becomes a question of, okay, let's the phones are allowed in the park, but now can they take a picture in front of Cinderella? Well, what would you do if you're a parent? Yeah, you'd want to take that picture. Okay. But, but they're going to mess up the maybe the professional shot. Okay, let's unpeel that a little bit. Let's walk that back. What about the professional actually taking the picture with the person's phone? Oh, that'd be good for the parent, but then the lawyer starts piping up at the end of the table. Well, what is it they drop the phone or they erase, they erase the photos? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. I go, there's a lot of things. I go, but at the end of the day, that patron, that customer, that parent's not going to understand that legal piece. All they're going to understand is that they came to Disney and that Disney is not nice to their customers because you wouldn't, as a person standing there, take a picture with their phone. And then the, the revenue officer said, they go, we're going to lose millions of dollars on these $25 photos. And I go, yeah, but you're going to get all this free marketing from them posting it on social. So that's going to be, and if someone's going to cannibalize, there's old saying, if someone's going to eat your lunch, it might as well be you. I go, this is going to happen. So you might as well proactively be on front of it. And then all of a sudden, a year later, Disney becomes the most Instagram place in the world. So that's millions and millions and millions of dollars of free advertising. You couldn't even script it any better. But you can see how difficult that decision is if you're kind of, if you're inside the bottle, right? It's impossible to see the label. And so that, that's what I love about projects to your question is not only the animation itself, but often it uncovers deeper levels of things that can be done better at organizations. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I assume it's, it's really hard sometimes to see what's on the label on the jar when you're inside, when you're inside the jar and getting that outside perspective. But if you have to do it, you know, we talk about a lot about needing, everything needs a trailer, right? Like you need a trailer for your idea. You need a short form version of the movement you're trying to push. You need a trailer of your business because we have short attention spans. And if you can't give it to us in two minutes, we're not interested in the 20 minute, two hour, two day version of affairs. So you said you start off with the question, you know, why? Like, why, why does anybody care? Are there any other questions that that two minutes has to answer other than that? Or do you just go hard, double down on that question? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I teach a class at Northwestern. And so part of that class, when we're talking about digital leadership is these folks are super smart, master level class, they're executives at their organizations, but they, all of us are in sales, whether you like it or not. If you're trying to get your kid to eat green beans, you're in sales. If you're trying to get your nonprofit for people to kind of come to that charity event, you're in sales. You're trying to get them to that event. 
And so when you think about a storytelling, there's a lot of different ways to do it that get fairly complex for my simple mind. And so whenever I'm storytelling, I want what's the situation and what's the action and what's the result. So situation, action, result. If it's in the past, if it's a vision I'm trying to sell, then it's vision, action, result. And so more times than not, if you're at an organization, you've got to paint the picture so they get excited. Here's the vision of where we want to be. Here's the action on how we get there. And then most importantly, for most businesses, they're interested in the result. If we do this, what's the outcome? And so when it comes to storytelling, that's a great framework to use. If it's happened in the past, it's situation, action, result. So the story I just told at Disney, the situation was there's new technology. There's people bringing phones in the park. We don't know what to do because we take pictures in front of Cinderella's castle. And then the decision becomes the action is we're going to allow these phones in there and we're going to allow our professional photographers to take that photo of the family. We might lose money. So the result is we lose money on this side of the business, but we got all this free exposure on social media like Instagram that we actually made X amount of revenue. So always think through that framework of vision, action, result if it's in the future or situation, action, result if it's a story that you're telling from the past. Love that. Love that. I want to just segue to a strange place for a second. I want to talk about your green glasses. If anyone who's watching the video, you'll be able to see these incredible green glasses. Um, if you can't and you're listening to the audio, then, you know, Google Eric and you'll see them very quickly. How did that come about? Because I know that that was a journey for you. Mm -hmm. It has, it has been a journey that continues, and it's a good example of things happening for you, not to you. And that took me a long time to learn, 15 years, actually. Most email addresses, it's your first initial, last name. So it's Eric Qualman, first initial E, last name Qualman. It, it's an email address of Equal Man. And I did not like it. Borderline hated it for the first 15 years of my career because you might be an intern at Cadillac in Detroit and we need coffee. We need coffee for the meeting. Well, Equal Man, he's a Southern superhero. You can go get it. You're super fast. And so I didn't like it for 15 years. And then in a moment of time, I realized, wait, this isn't happening for to me. This is happening for me. So my second book, Digital Leader, was doing pretty well. And so they wanted to do an interview for a magazine. And that magazine wanted to take a picture for the cover. And they asked me, hey, you have an interesting email address and website address of equalman.com. Do you mind if we give you some Clark Kent, like Superman glasses, since it sounds like a superhero? I go, yeah, we can have some fun with it. And they go, well, it's our St. Paddy's edition. Do you mind if they're green? I go, yeah, whatever. We'll just have some fun. So we take the photo, and these are really bright glasses. They came out, they're like, whoa, those are really bright. Then a couple of weeks later, I fly to Kenya to give a keynote address. And I'd never been to Kenya before. This is my first time to Kenya. So I wanted to really learn about the culture. So the night before, I went to a rescue shelter to adopt a baby cheetah, uh, just to support that shelter, not to take home, obviously, but just to support the shelter. And on the ride over, the lady that I'm with, she looks at me and goes, Hey, Usain Bolt, the Olympic sprinter, just happened to be here two days ago, and he adopted from the same litter that you're going to adopt from. We filmed him. We'd love, if you don't mind, to film you and marry the footage together just to raise some more awareness and money for, for this rescue shelter. So I go, yeah, that sounds great. We're happy to do it. And she looks at me and pauses and goes, but obviously when we're filming, we want to make sure you're wearing your iconic green glasses. 
And I look at her and I go, oh, I don't walk around the world wearing those glasses. I look like a fool. Those are just for that magazine. And then the look out of disappointment on her face, and she goes, no, 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 everyone in Kenya, that's their expectation. That's what they think you look like. That's their expectation. So I never want to have that look of disappointment again, but it was a trigger that went off in my head that said, hey, you fool, this is happening for you, not to you. Step into that discomfort and just embrace it. So if you can help one other person, then it's worth wearing those glasses. Now, keep in mind, this has happened. The world shifted very rapidly in the last eight years. So if we look back eight years ago, most keynote speakers were still wearing suits, even with a tie on stage. And so for me to have green glasses, we'd actually lose deals. Like people didn't want to book me for a business event because they're like, well, what's up with the green glasses? We need someone serious for this business event. But in time, it actually, we'd lose those deals, but we'd gain other deals because we're like, you know, we're sick of the stuffy speaker. We want someone that's exciting, someone who's different, different ideas. This guy's talking about innovation. He's talking about focus. Glasses make sense. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden, now we've sold, we've become a seller of these glasses because just like the animation story I told you, that these conferences and companies started saying, hey, when Eric's on stage, can we get some of those green glasses for the audience? We're like, yeah, you can order them over here. And then in time, they said, no, 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 we want you to order. We, we want you to bring them and have, and then we said, well, we can put your logo, and over time it evolved. So now we've sold close to 100,000 of these glasses. So they'll have them on the chairs at the events where I give keynotes. People have fun with them. I have the executives put them on. Obviously, I'm talking about focus, it makes sense. I talk about pioneering, it's about stepping into that discomfort so that they remember, they see those green glasses on their chair, they're like, oh yeah, it's not supposed to be easy. As a pioneer, I'm supposed to get that pushback. And so it's been a wild journey. We don't know where it's gonna go next, but it's been a fun ride. I never knew I was gonna write a focus book, but when I did, that's when they said, let's put you on the cover. It's the only book that I talk about personal things. It's the only book that I'm on the cover and it's because the glasses are there. I think there's, there's something just really important there around stepping into your story, right? Like rather than resisting your story, I feel like for a lot of us, we have this viewpoint that there are, you know, parts of me that I'd rather nobody else knew about. There's parts of me I wouldn't want to discuss. There's the parts that make me different that I'd rather keep over here because those are the parts that, you know, will... I don't know, have me ostracized or whatever the feeling is. It's the keeping small of a part of ourselves. And the irony is, like the green glasses, it's those parts of ourselves, those parts of our story that are often the ones that are the key to standing out and the key to being a full technicolor version of yourself. Uh, irony again, green glasses, as opposed to a muted down version of everybody else. What what are some of the keys to stepping into stepping into your story? Because obviously there is discomfort involved. Yeah, I love the way you frame it because it is true. If it was easy to step into your story, we'd all have done it. And so what's interesting is now I talk about this on stage. So I would never talk about the green glasses on stage. I just would have them on. And then we have a pretty good feedback loop because People think I'm crazy, but I give out my email address on stage because I want to know, I want to connect with people. Just not me on stage. I want to connect with them long after that. And so I started to realize that 
they're distracted. They wanted to know why I was wearing bright green glasses. They say, I love your message, but why are you wearing these glasses? So I go, okay, maybe I'll just tell it on stage. And so I told the story on stage and then it started to come back that feedback loop. That was their favorite part of the whole keynote. So it's something that I would resisted telling. And then I started to realize, wow, personal is very powerful. Even though it's uncomfortable for me to talk about myself, I grew up in the Midwest and in Michigan where you don't, you don't talk about yourself. You just don't. And, and so, but then I realized I could do it because it was helping someone else out. Because you're exactly right, is that people haven't stepped into their story like me. They resisted it for 15 years. So when I tell that story on stage, I tell them, I'm going to tell you my story, but it's everyone's story here. And so some of you on that journey haven't taken that step. But when you do, it's going to be very uncomfortable at first. But long term, it's the most comfortable place we can live is being our full self. But those first couple steps are very difficult. It's very uncomfortable. Like I mentioned, we lost revenue. I'd wear them on my head because I was just, I didn't want people looking at me because uh, I could tell they're like, oh, there's, why is that guy wearing green glasses like that? And now I've worn them enough, I forget that I'm wearing them and somebody will say, I love your glasses or they won't love them. So it's very binary. Uh, but the, the core message is to exactly right, Julie, as you said, to step into that discomfort. In short term, it's discomfort, but long term, it's the most comfortable place we can live. Or perhaps you have stepped in your story, but you haven't stepped into the biggest chapter. And you know that chapter. You know it. You're just afraid of that failure that, that you're afraid. And I do it too, that I won't tell people I'm writing another book. Or I won't tell them, here's my dream is to actually write a fiction book. Because if I say it, then it's real. And, and if it's real, then there can be failure with that. Where if I just wish for it, it's not real till I verbalize it. It's not real till I take that step. And so the reason we don't do that is because if I don't take that step, then I've never failed. Just like if you're a great singer or think you are, if you never get on stage, you can never discover that you're not a bad, that you're a bad singer. But you also, the inverse of that is you can never discover that you're the greatest singer in the world. And so it's one of those weird things we all wrestle with. Somebody said something really interesting to me the other day, which really st struck home and it was you know you're not afraid of failure you're afraid of being seen as a beginner and I was just I had one of those moments where I thought yeah like I've I failed at a lot of things you know do I have I have a healthy fear of failure but you know I failed at enough things now to know that I'll survive but I do have fear of being seen as a beginner of being seen as you know not having any clue what I'm doing at something and trying things and all the things that you have to try in order to hit the thing that's going to work. Um, for you, I, I kind of picked up there and I don't know if this is true or not. And I know you'll tell me that you feel like this chapter in the green glass is, is almost coming to a close, or you can see a time when it will come to a close because there's the stepping into our story that's very true for us. And as you said, it's the most comfortable place we can be. We've got to get through the discomfort and then it is the most comfortable, flowful, easeful place we can be because it's just us being us. But then where's the opportunity then to change again, to transform again, to start a new chapter, to shed the things that don't represent you anymore. And it feels like you might be just on the edge of that again. Yeah, I mean, we're coming, you come a long enough way that you're always trying to reinvent yourself and it's 
sometimes it's overnight, but a lot of times it's evolutionary rather than revolutionary. And so whenever I get too stressed, which we all do, we all, the world can be overwhelming. Um, I'm very Christian. And so when you look at it from a lens, no matter what your faith is, just if you have a, a higher power, it gives you a little bit of relief that you don't control everything. And so if you, no matter if, if you're not religious, it doesn't matter. Just, I like to picture myself, I'm on a raft, there's a current, and that current is not something I control. And that current might take me down another path that I wasn't expecting. I wanted to go down this path, but it's taking me over here. And so my role is whenever I have something that comes in that says, hey, you need to paddle over here, that's your job. Like, it's not, you just like floating, you're putting an effort, because it's like, now you gotta paddle, over here and it's phrased different ways like one door shuts another opens but it's really i like to envision myself on a tube i don't control that current and i don't really control where that current's going to take me but i do control when i have that conviction hey the social media thing's big you need to tell the world about it so then you start to paddle towards that social media or it's we just released this game we want to do a kids game so kids get off their screen oh paddle over here for some reason we want to do this kitty corn game so we're gonna do this kitty corn game, let's paddle over here. Or the focus project is a lot different than the previous books. The other five books are very technical per se. Um, I don't talk about myself, it's not personal at all. Where the focus project was very personal because I was struggling with focus, my hair was on fire. So that's why it's called the project. I wanted to undertake this project to help myself out. We'd have a readership of one, no matter what, because I needed this but then more talk to more people that they were wrestling with it too. So that was, again, you're on the tube floating on the river. Oh, paddle over here. You gotta uncover this focus thing because everyone's wrestling with it. All of a sudden the pandemic hits, throws fire, you know, gasoline on the fire. Boom, now everyone's really wrestling with focus. And so you can't, you can only connect the dots looking back as Steve Jobs famously said at Stanford commencement. But it's really about that journey and just, trying to paddle when you when you have that conviction, but know that there's things beyond your control, that current. It's funny, my husband and I talked a lot about this during the lockdowns, that when the current changes, and again, just an, an amazing analogy, when the current changes, you have two options, right? You can either paddle with the current or you can try and paddle or swim against the current. And guess who's going to win? <laughs> it's, it's not going to be you. And you're going to end up, you know, exhausted, washed out, burnt out, and still in some way where the current wanted to take you. And so it's this beautiful dance, which I don't know that I do well all of the time. I know I don't actually do it, do it well all the time. This beautiful dance between feeling into where the momentum and the movement is taking to you, showing up and doing the paddling and letting go of where you thought you were going or where you thought this was taking you or where you envisaged it was taking you. What have you learned? What have you learned about, and we're going to get onto focus projects in a second, but what have you learned about letting go in that? Yeah, I think the key is that you take the time to scream, take the time to let it out, uh, take the time to yell um, behind closed doors, preferably. But yeah, let whatever you're, your outlet is to kind of like go that is not the current that's not the place i was expecting to go i wanted to go over here and so shout it out didn't go as expected get that out and then i like to take more of a the scientific method of well that's interesting let's learn from that 
Um, and you can apply that to a lot of things in life. You know, I grew up playing sport. I still do. So in tennis, while the opponent might get frustrated, I want to make sure they don't see that I never want to overtly show them my frustration. Um, and so what I'll do is I miss hit a shot. I'm like, well, that's interesting why that shot went in the net. Why did it go in the net? Trying to figure it out. Maybe my feet weren't right and trying to figure that out. Or on the opponent's side, okay, I'm losing to this guy because I keep serving it down the middle. Let's test this out and serve it wide and see if that helps. And so a good metaphor for life, a lot of sports, is that if you use that scientific approach, often that can kind of release that stress. But we all encounter that stress. We're not, we're not like Obi-Wan Kenobi. We've got to like yell. You got to like let it out. Like, man, I did not expect this. This is not what I was expecting. Why is my book not selling? Or I spent two years writing this and it's not going to sell. And then you can only look back because it pushes you to some other angle. Like, no, you should write this piece or you should do more on the animation side or you should do, you know, X, Y, Z. So it's always fascinating. Uh, I love the, the, the scream it out. Like it's been one of my words for this year, exhale, just, you've got to exhale at some point, you know, you've got to just let it out, process it, move it through before you try and fill any, you know, fill the container with anything else. Like empty out the container first and then, you know, and then you can fill it with more, but I don't feel like, you know, we often take the time to do that. All right. I want to talk about the focus project. So many, so many questions here. Um, it's an incredible book, by the way. Congratulations. You can really feel like you wrote it as a, as you said, a readership of one. Like this was a project, something you were struggling with, and these are the tactics that you were trying out and the results that you were getting. Let's start with, how did it start? Because I know, um, I believe it started with a particular conversation. I mean, it just started because I was sitting there having a conversation with my wife and then a conversation with myself, why is every day my hair on fire at the end of the day? And then I say, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Like we vision that the, the tomorrow is going to be different. And that it was the same thing was happening. And I pause and I go, this is crazy. What have we built here as a business? Like, is it controlling me? Is this business now controlling? Did I build something that now controls me? And I paused and said, this is crazy because I'm the owner of this business. So I don't, I own my time. Why is my hair on fire every day? And then I started to talk to people because that's what I like to do is like, Hey, this is what I'm wrestling with. And they go, I am too. I can't focus. My days are crazy. I don't, can't get everything done. My to-do list is too big and I'm stressed out. And I don't feel like I'm giving my kids enough time, but then work suffering. And then my family's suffering and at all these parts of my life that I'm not working out. And I go, this is crazy. And so I was talking to a lot of people and they shared the same thing. But what I want to look at is I go, there's got to be a solve for this. And, and realizing that, wait, we're placed on this earth. What have I built when I can kind of, we control our own time, whether we think it or not, we do control our time. So then I wanted to look at institutional research and then also street science. I was going to take, this isn't a new problem. It's a lot more difficult because of the hyperconnectivity of today's world but it's not a new problem. The more I researched it, so history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so I was looking back at the Stoics and I was looking back, wow, this has gone back since the age of time that people can't focus on big things versus busy ones and they're stressed out. 
And so then I, I started to attack it. Okay, that's a, let me try this. Okay, let me try that. So that was the street science, me testing different things. And that's why in the book it's called the project because I wanted it to be a year project where I did a different focus a month. I failed miserably the first year. Because you couldn't focus. Again, if it was easy, it already be done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't focus. Because I go, all right, in order to have the luxury of writing this, primarily what drives a lot, of, we do a lot of things at Equal Man Studios, but the thing that drives most success is me speaking on stage, which you know quite well. So me speaking on stage. So I go, in order for us to afford this luxury of this project where I can focus on a different thing per month, the first month I've absolutely got to nail me getting booked on stage for the year. Now, historically, we haven't done any outreach of sales. It's kind of been lucky that it's kind of come inbound. So this was not only a new approach, but also just a more intentional approach to us being speakers on stage or me being on stage. So that's what I did. I failed five times. I go, all right, I'm going to carve out a half hour a day just to focus on sales. And then the first month, 18 minutes for the whole month. And I go, what the heck? I'm writing a book on this stuff. This is how hard it is. Oh, I'm getting pulled in every direction and I'm going to the, the busy rather than the big. So five failed attempts. That's why it's a two-year project. Then after the, the fifth time, the second year, January 1, we finally got it right. And fortunately, it did work because otherwise there's no book, right? If I don't get a lot of sales from that focus, and again, it was just a half hour a day. So obviously, I do more than a half hour, but it's like I'm trying to do a minimum of 30 minutes a day. And it would go to two hours, but all of a sudden we had a record amount of sales, not only for January, but for the entire year, just by adjusting that focus. Uh, and that afforded me the luxury to focus on other things per month. Because I would just, before the book, I daydream about how cool would it be if I just got to focus on all the house projects for a month. Whether that's dealing with the contractors, whether that's getting the new bed, whether it's organizing, getting things clean, cleaned out. So a lot of you listeners are probably like, oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm literally, month, as you're talking, writing a mental yeah. list of everything I would do, and it's comprehensive. Yeah, very comprehensive. So uh, that, that's the whole thing. And then so we put it, I was able to write it into a book, and, and that's why it's personal. And that's why I talk about my kids and my wife in the book, because it was, it was a project. And just how do I focus on big things like family and and big things that move the business rather than on all these busy things that can gobble you up and cause stress. All right. So let's get into what you learned for a second. So you said that the first year, you know, let's call that trial and error year. It's the, the figuring it out year or the figuring out what doesn't work. Um, January 1, the next year, things start to change. What shifted? The big shift for the was just the intent, and I'll get into some tactical pieces, but the three main things, because when I get done with the book, I'm like, what are the three things that I learned? And so number one, focus is very, 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 very hard in this hyper-connected world. So that's why the five failures in that year, that's why the project took two years instead of one. But the cool thing is that focus can be learned, but it has to be intentional on in how you learn it. Second, the top thought leaders, successful people are better at focusing than us. That's why they're at the top. Now, they don't have an inherent DNA that lets them focus better. What they've learned is systematically systems and processes. And most of those systems and processes are around saying no. And we'll get into some of the tactical stuff, but one of the key takeaways, if it's not a hell yes, it should be a hell no. So if it's not a hell yes, it should be a hell no. So say no to almost everything because that allows you to say yes to the big things. 
That's what successful people do and thought leaders do. And then last but not least, that it is progress, not perfection. I wrote a book on this. I did a year, two years on this, a year where it was written about in the project. And the gravitational pull to this day, I always reference the book because I, the pull is strong. So it's about progress, not perfection. You're going to have days just like I do where I'm like, that was not a very focused day. Give yourself some grace. Think about life as a roller coaster. The key is that that long line over the years continues to go up, but there's dips over the months, over the days, over sometimes the years, the seasons. It's just making sure that that long-term line continues to go up, but it's more like a roller coaster ride. So progress over perfection when it comes to focus. Give yourself some grace. Talk to me about the tactical. I want to know, you know, what are... So you've done the project now. What are some of the key parts of that project that are still part of your life today, that you're still doing, still using as part of your structure? So we just talked a little about, so if it's not a hell yes, it should be a hell no. So like a lot of people, a lot of listeners, you're a people pleaser. I'm a people pleaser for most society that does you well. It helps you assimilate the tribes. It's a good thing that you're a people pleaser. But the key is you've got to learn to say, no to most things because what i also learned this will give you some help it'll make you feel better when you say no if you're saying yes to everyone you're essentially saying no to everybody because you're not going to give your full self so if you say yes to everything and everyone honestly you're saying no to everybody because you're not going to be able to do your best because you spread yourself too thin so think of that mindset or think of a mindset of a surgeon they're only allowed to work certain hours because at a certain point in time, they become a detriment to the patient. And so you got to think of your time like a surgeon that you only have so many yeses. Or if you're in retail or I'm an e-commerce person, you got to think of inventory. Like think of boxes that say yes. And you've got a lot more. You only have so many yeses on that shelf. So every time you say yes, you got to think of yourself physically taking that yes box off the shelf. So you really want to protect those yeses for the big things, for the big things. Now, how do you say no? It's easy for me to say no. So you want to get systems and processes in place to make it easy on yourself. So this is a good story of without the project, this never would have happened. So I volunteer my time at our church to teach Sunday school. Now my girls are young, so they're in Sunday school. Now I travel quite a bit for work because of, I'm a keynote speaker, so I travel the world. And so when I'm at home, I want to be spending time with the family. So I want to make sure that I'm teaching my girls class. So I'll say, yes, I'm happy to volunteer. I know you need teachers. I'm happy to volunteer. I'd really prefer to be with my girls. And then invariably, they'd email me that week and say, hey, we don't have enough people to cover the boys. Can you cover the boys? And before the project, I'd say yes. Because even though I want to cover the girls, I'm like, what kind of volunteer am I if it's on my terms? But then I'm doing this project. So then it comes in, I'm like, you know, I gotta test this out. I'm talking about this in the book. This is my time, street science, let's test it out. So I go, they go, hey, can you, do the, can you do the boys? And I go, hey, I'd really like to help with the boys, but since I travel so much, I'm only gonna be able to do the girls because I wanna make sure I'm spending time with my girls when I'm in town. And so I'm like, yeah, I did it, sweet. I sent that off, we're good. I can't believe I did that. I feel kind of bad because I'm like, oh, this is a terrible volunteer. And it's like, no, I'm not gonna help you out. I'll only help you this way. 
So I feel, but I, I feel bad, but net positive. I'm like, I did it. I said, no, that's really good. Then I thought that was the end of it. Nope. Two days later, same lady. Hey, I know you said no, but really we're in a tight spot because we know you've worked with the boys before. Can you handle the boys this weekend? And I go, man, this is the testing ground. But thankfully I've got this book. I got to test it. So I literally copy and paste the same email that I wrote previously. So that's the system process. Copy, paste it, send it back. This time she goes, all right, great. We've got Jill. She's going to cover the boys. And then this isn't always going to work out like this. Like my girls say, it's not always rainbows and unicorns. But it turns out that Jill actually enjoyed working with the boys better than the girls. So it actually worked out net net best for all. But I was just really proud of myself as a people pleaser that I was able to do that. And that was liberating for me because then from there, I go, oh, my gosh, this is so good that if it's not a hell yes, it should be a hell no. And then so I have a copy and paste email. If someone reaches out to me and I don't it's not a hell yes. Then I just copy and paste and say, hey, this is a great opportunity. I'm honored that you reached out to me to do this opportunity, but I apologize. I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm heads down writing this next book or whatever it is I'm working on that I, I do want to do. And I'm not leaving it open. That's another learning. It's not like, hey, I can't do it this week because guess what? Next week they're going to reach out to you. So if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no for all time, right? You just want to be quick and to the point. Now, on the other side of that, when we do the research, that's actually good for the recipient. They're not, the, the best thing is they get a yes. But the second best thing is a definitive no. Because then they're not holding a spot. Or if they're in sales, they're not talking about you on the pipeline for a couple of weeks. Hey, this person's kind of interested. I think we're going to sell it to them. And then it's a long no. That's the worst no. They didn't get to move on. They're spending time on you. Or they're waiting for your answer. So they didn't, weren't able to get another volunteer, so to speak. For if you're at a charity. So anyways, that sharp, short no is actually the second best gift that you can give someone if they're asking you for a favor. I love what you did there when you broke down the no. You know, you start, you started with respect and appreciation. You know, I really appreciate you bringing this to me. And then you made it about you rather than about them, which is, it's not about you. It's not about your opportunity. I am working on something at the moment that I want to give my 100% focus to or I want to spend more time with my family or whatever it happens to be. Um, so I'm going to have to, you know, regretfully decline on this occasion. I wish you all the best with your project. And as you said, closed door. No, you know what, maybe check in with me a little bit later, maybe, which I am a classic for doing. Maybe talk to me a bit towards the end of the year. Maybe get back in touch next year. Just And then you free up everybody's energy, right? You free up your energy because you've said no, you can move on, and you free up them to go and explore something that's going to work out better for them in the long run, somebody who's able to give it their undivided attention. I want to I talk about the idea of attacking the morning. This, I've, tr I've tried multiple different ways of doing this in my career, and so... And I can't say that I've hit on a winning formula just yet. So I'm really curious. Firstly, what do you mean when you say attacking the morning? And what does that look like? What have you come to, to put into place here? So I would say attack the day before it attacks you. And so the best way to do that is in the morning. Now, it doesn't matter if you're not a morning person. So it's really just about what I call the power hour. So if you happen to, and we'll just do it for you, just because it'll be interesting for the listeners while the listeners are listening as well. A, a very simple approach to figure out what type of bird you are. So if you're a morning, a robin, so that's an early bird, right? If you're an eagle, that's more mid-tier, or you're a night owl, 
So those are the three birds. You know, you got the night owl, you got the eagle, and then you have the robin, which is the morning bird. So I just want you to think, close your eyes. This is for you and also the listeners. It's Saturday morning. Somehow the kids, they're maybe at Grammy and Granddad's. They're just not going to wake you up. There's nothing that's going to get you up. Nothing's going to bother you. I know this is a fantasy, but nothing's going to disturb you. What time would you naturally get up? Like what time would you naturally wake up and, and feel like you're ready to get out of bed? Sometime, but sometime between six and seven. So let's just say six thirty. Okay, six thirty. So you're a robin. So anyone that's under seven a.m., they're a robin. Anyone that's seven to ten, which most people are, they're eagles. And then the smallest percentage are actually night owls. So that's anyone that'd wake up after ten a.m. So that's just good for you to know, self-awareness. But let's say that you're naturally inclined to get up at six thirty. So six thirty, you get up. You have a half hour where you're sort of waking up. So in that 30 minutes, you can do whatever works for you, whether that's, you know, gratitude journal, it might be just you calmly, it might be just checking social media, whatever it is that's kind of getting you geared up. But then if you can, then once you're kind of awake, and some people can do it 15 minutes, but let's just say 30 minutes, then what you want to do is you want to utilize that power hour or power half hour, whatever time you have, a lot of people have busy lives, but that's when you carve that time out for you. And that's when you want to attack the most important thing. So identifying your to-do list, what's the one thing that makes everything else either easier or unnecessary? As I mentioned for me, that is for the year, is get on stage. And so I'm going to look at that to-do list. Which of these, if I do get on stage, it makes everything else easier. Book sales, glasses sales, whatever we're trying to do. Impact on people, connections. And so you want to look down that list and ask yourself, what's the one thing that makes everything else either easier or necessary? That's what you want to attack in that power. You want to attack it before the day attacks you. Then you do that. You're playing with house money the rest of the day. You've attacked the thing that probably you didn't want to do, to be honest. Probably the one thing, answering email is pretty easy. So save that for later when you're tired. You know, use your brain when it's at the highest power and your energy is at the highest power. Attack the day before. Everything that's going to go crazy is going to go crazy. Like I interviewed this lady. She's 52. She's really good CEO, turnaround CEO. And she goes, you know, Eric, it's crazy. But it didn't happen until my 50th birthday. I always woke up hoping nothing bad or nothing unexpected would happen in that day, which makes sense. And then she goes, but after 50 years of my birthday, I realized that day had never come. All those days, those currents we we're talking about had gotten shifted. And so instead of approaching the day, like I hope nothing bizarre happens or bad happens, I wake up and go, can't wait to see what challenges are facing me. They'll make me better today and how I attack those challenges. So she's not a masochist. It's just she realized that's the wrong approach to wake up and just hope that the day is going to go perfectly planned. That day had never come for her. So circling back, it's really you got to attack the day before all those challenges start to take place. So then you're playing with house money. Oh, I, I'm writing a book. Okay, so I spent 30 minutes writing. Okay, I did the most important thing today. I did that. The day might get sideways where I don't feel like I have control, but that's okay because I did that 30 minutes in the morning. I, I attacked that one thing that's so important. I used to have, um, I've lost it now, but when I had a big team, when I had a big global team, I used to have the 11 o'clock rule. 11 a.m. So, you know, I'd at that stage I had calls from 
the US probably about five until kind of 7am in the morning. And then, um, you know, I'd have breakfast, get ready. This is before kids. And, but that time between about eight and 11, I didn't get into my emails. Um, I didn't do anything reactive. I just attacked the priorities that I wanted to work on because my theory was, and it didn't always work out. My theory was that if I can do what I need to do before 11, so no meetings, no emails, between 11 and 12, I can still get back to people via email, which means I've still got back to them that morning. If they email me the prior day, I've still got back to them the next morning. But I carve out between three to two hours every single day to work on the things that are important to me. And, you know, the team knows it. There's no meetings prior to that time. That is time where I just get stuff done. And then the rest of the day can be the rest of the day, like the challenges, the disruptions, the fires to put out, the child who's homesick, the, you know, the rest of the day can be the rest of the day. Um, but I just love that concept of attacking, attacking your morning or optimizing your morning, like getting it done before it happens to you. But I love that you're intentional at that point from eight to 11. And sometimes it takes, sometimes it's, it's honestly a, a, a death to a loved one to where you drop everything. You drop everything, you go to be with the family, you go to the funeral and you're out of pocket for four, five days. You don't do work at all because you're just 100% focused in that moment. And then you realize, hey, the world continued without me. And so even though in my mind, I think I can't afford just to devote eight to 11 to myself or to these projects that I think are the most important, but it gives you that realization. You're like, I was gone five days. It didn't do a thing. So I can definitely do three hours a day to where it's just, I'm shut off. I'm, I'm focused, like deeply focused on the things that matter. You've talked before about a to-do list and a not to-do list. And getting really clear on what's each, on each. And I'm guessing, you know, your not to do list should be much bigger than your to do list. What's on what's on your not to do list right now? Like, how do you structure that? Not to do list for sure is not to answer email in the morning. So that should not be the first thing you do because you can do that when your brain's tired later. So that's on the, the not to do list. On the not to do list, as I mentioned, is saying yes to everything, like chalk up, kind of take pride in saying no, saying it the right way, being polite and being respectful. But but that's also on the not to do list, saying yes to everything. Sometimes it could be specific. So for a long time when social media, like you mentioned with the videos, so people reached out to me, hey, companies, big companies, big brands, can you run our social media? Like I would do coaching for a day, but they're like, no, we want you and your team to run our social campaigns. And I would say, no, 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 no. And then finally I go, I don't know how long this opportunity is gonna be available. It doesn't feel like it's in my DNA. Like Gary Vaynerchuk's running VaynerMedia. Like that's just not my thing, I don't think, to run a big agency. But I go, you know, it's not really fair to my team. Let me go ask the team. They're like, let's do it. I go, look, I I'm not gonna be able to help much. I'm like, my head's down over here on this other stuff. Like, you're gonna have to run at it. This is like not easy to do. You sure you wanna do it? Yeah, yeah, let's do it, let's do it, do it. Long story longer, it was a disaster for us and for these this big brand. Fortunately, we, we quickly realized that say, hey, let's, you don't have to, 
they're like, you don't have to be beholden this contract. They knew it's going to be difficult for both sides, but let's just kind of move on, move forward. So that's on the not to do list. Certain things like that that you go, okay, these certain opportunities you'll now turn down. You you mentioned a question before, and you and you mentioned it very briefly, and I want to come back to it because when I read this question, I literally I just wrote next to it the word gold. Um, and that was, what's the one thing that if I do it well, will make everything else easier or not necessary? Just walk, walk me through that question and give me some examples of what the answer could be. Because I think that this is a game changer question for a lot of people. Yeah. So what's the one thing if we do it well, makes everything easier and necessary? It gets back to a lot of the listeners might know the Pareto principle that, you know, 80% of the results are from 20% of either a product or your effort. So when you look at, say, Google, still to this day, almost all their revenue comes from search. So at the end of the day, if they don't improve the search algorithm, if they lose that part of the business, they can have Google Maps, they can have Gmail, they can have you know, Google Cloud, they can have Google Sheets. But at the end of the day, is if they don't do that well, that's a problem. And so what's the one thing that if I do it well, makes everything else either easier or unnecessary. So if you look on a to-do list, as I mentioned earlier, if I've got a long to-do list, well, on that to-do list, it might say, hey, we need to do better on the podcast. We need to get more subscribers to podcasts. Let's say that's on the to-do list. Well, what's the one thing if I do it well, might make that so I don't have to do anything to get more subscribers to the podcast. Well, it might be me on stage. So that's the one thing if we do it well, we don't, it'll make everything else either easier or unnecessary. It'll certainly make getting subscribers to the podcast easier if I'm on stage a lot. And it might mean I don't have to run any ads for the podcast or even put as much organic time into the podcast because I'm on stage, I get off stage and I go, hey, do you have a podcast? Yes, here it is. And we've got a little card I can hand them if they ask for it. And so that's an example of looking at all your to-dos and your goals and saying, really, what's that keystone? When you think about building a, a building, it's all about that keystone. What's the main thing that if I do it well, it's going to make everything else either easier or necessary? Now, more times than not, that actually is sometimes the thing you don't want to do. Some people call it eating the frog. It might be whatever it is that you have to do. But a lot of times, it's the thing you sort of know you need to do, but maybe you don't want to do it and you put it off. But you know that it's, it's like taking your medicine sometimes. And tying back to the previous point, you know, that's what you do in those first couple of hours of the day. You know, that's the thing you attack first up. And make it easy on yourself. It can be like if you want to write a book, I used to be, I, I put pressure on myself and go write X amount of words. Some, some authors do that because people always ask me, what's the system for writing books? I go, everyone's different. I go, I try to do it where I'm going to write X amount of words. I go, that's not really working for me. So instead I go, today I'm just going to put a half hour of writing. Whether that's one sentence or whether that's maybe, sometimes it's 3,000 words that never go in the book. It's so bad. Like just, But I just put in that 30 minutes. And so that works better for me. So figure out what systems work for you. But it's really, it's staying intentional, just keeping at it, it's that trickle, right? It's that keep trickling away. So whatever that big goal is that you have, it could be you want to get in better shape. A lot of people want to get in better shape at the beginning of the year. And so you want to make it easy on yourself just to take that small step. It's not go out, I'm going to buy this gym membership and I'm going to work out an hour a day. 
It could be just that, okay, every time that I brush my teeth, I'm going to do one push-up. Well, obviously, you're probably going to do more than one push-up when you do that. You probably brush your teeth three or four times a day, five, whatever, how many times you brush your teeth. But that's a good approach, is to make it small, small bites, chunks, and it's a small step to really lead to those giant leaps. Um, I'm curious because you've, you've got a family, you know, we were talking about, we were talking about your kids before we came on air, you've got a, a massive speaking schedule, you've got the studios, you've got, you're writing books, you know, for me as someone who has young children and runs a business and, and has a podcast and there's constantly this, I don't want to call it tension, but it's a, a dance. Let's call it a dance. It's a dance between the being out in the world and the being here and present for the tiny things. You know, there's the big thoughts, big ideas, big stages, and then here and present and awake. The discipline of attention for the tiny little things like, you know, the wobbly tooth or the sock that's not right. <laughs> How do you, how do you dance that dance? How have you learned to dance that dance? I've been lucky because early on I identified that some of my peers, it's you do you. And so I go, I know that at the end of this short span that we're here, that I'm not going to look back and go, man, I wish I would have taken five more speaking deals or I wish I would have made X amount more money. But I know that I would say, man, I wish I was there more. And so then you have to put in systems and processes to protect what's important to you. And so we quickly realized that 52 nights seemed about right. The 52 nights away from the kids is about what I could tolerate. And it's also good for them that I'd be present. But it was mainly selfishly for me because I love being around the family. And so again, you do what's best for you. But for me, that was what's gonna work best for me. So a lot of times we take the kids, we've had amazing experiences of taking them around the world because when I speak in the summer, they travel with me. Obviously when they're in school, they're not gonna travel with me. And so it's really making sure that we're focused on that number one metric is at 52 nights away. And what that helps do though, is it helps raise your speaking fee sometimes, or it helps you really push back more than you normally maybe would have from a business perspective. But most importantly, it's really putting those guardrails in place so you don't, all of us have the tendency to go off the, off the road. And so putting those guardrails in place systematically to make sure that what matter, what's gonna matter five years from now, 10 years from now. And so always asking yourself that question and now it's so wonderful. I'm so lucky to be in this business because if I get a speaking deal, I'm super excited because obviously that's revenue, but also I get to impact people from the stage. So, oh, this is amazing. I've got this event. I'm going to Toronto tomorrow. We're going to rock it. And then the other side of it is that, oh, someone else, they picked this speaker. They picked James Clear for this event. Oh, that's cool. I'll be at home with the kids. So if you take that approach, then it kind of changes everything. But again, that's just my system. But I tell that because everyone out there listening, you'll develop your own system. And at the end of each day, basically, I try to do this. And this is crazy. I'm going to tell you because it, it only takes 60 seconds. There's days I don't do this. It's like, how do you not do that? 60 seconds. So on a Google spreadsheet, I write down there. Was it a plus one day, a plus two or plus three? Minus one, minus two, minus three. And then next to that, I write down why. Why was it a plus two day? Why was it such a good day? 
or negative two. Why was it a negative two? Like you felt like the world, you didn't have any control. What, what was it? And you'll start to see those patterns over time. And over time, you see what matters to you, what brings you joy. And so then you start to be more intentional with your time. And so it's, that's a good system to use as well as to write that down each and every day. And over time, you're going to see a pattern and pattern recognition. For me, it's like spending time with my kids is the thing I love to do the most, spending time with my family. And so then that helps formulate your to-do list and your not-to-do list. One of my last questions, and I just want to stick on the parenthood thing for now, because I feel like when you look at it from the lens of either parenthood or mentorship or relationships with younger generations, it really crystallizes our thinking for some reason. Um, what, you know, you, you obviously wrote Socialnomics, which was about this coming wave that this tsunami that is not getting any slower of digital proliferation in our lives, social media, everything else, when we're meta. Um, and then you, you were very clear about the fact that you wrote the Focus Project as almost the anti-venom to that. You know, I wrote about this, this is coming. We're going to need this now because guess what? The only intention of the digital world is to strip you of your focus, strip you of your attention. So you've, you've written those two books. What advice or guidance do you give your children about how and where they spend their attention with that constant pull from the digital world? Yeah, no, it's a, a great question that I'm going to unpack in two seconds because you just jogged my memory on something because my lovely wife, during the course of writing the book, I come home and I went to open a drawer and I couldn't open the drawer. And you've all been there. It's almost impossible to get your hand in there to release whatever. It's too stuffed. So I finally get it open. I'm like, oh my gosh, this drawer is crazy full. And my youngest daughter at the time, I think she was five, I started to move items from the drawer. I go, there's an empty drawer right next to it. So I started to put half the stuff in the empty drawer. And my daughter is so funny, goes, Daddy, you can't put stuff in that drawer. I go, why not? It's empty. She goes, it's, that's mommy's drawer. I go, yeah, but it's empty. This one's, I can't even open it. It's so crowded with your guys' stuff. And she goes, no, that's mommy's drawer. You're going to get in trouble if you put stuff in that drawer. I'm like, all right, I'll deal with that. So I put it in there. And then sure enough, I, I, my wife comes home. She goes, who put stuff in this drawer? And I go, I did. I couldn't open the drawer next to it. She goes, no, 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 this is the drawer. I need it to be empty. I go, what? That's crazy. What do you mean you want it empty? She goes, I can't have every drawer in the house full. This is my way of saying my life is not completely overstuffed, that I actually have one drawer that's empty. And I go, you know what? Either we're both crazy, but since I write this book on focus, that's genius. And I'm going to put that in the book that, that you have the concept that you have to have this empty drawer. And then I politely ask, can we make it the smallest drawer? No, <laughs> no but it, was, it was just like, just that metaphor to have that empty drawer in your life. But with the kids, when it comes to digital, a couple things, first of all, and we did some research for, for a video that Steve Jobs wouldn't let his kids on the iPad. If you look at some of the top tech execs that I've been able to interview, they don't, they're like, they're writing the programs that are keeping these kids on these tools. They want to let their kids use them. So the tools aren't inherently bad, but they are designed to make money. And so they have PhDs that are writing code to get you to stay on them longer, whether you're an adult or whether you're a teenager. 
Now the issue is with the teens, their prefrontal cortex isn't developed, so they're at a bigger disadvantage, but still adults get addicted to these things as well. So my approach is to let them know that these tools are good, that these tools, if you use them well, are good, they can connect the world, you can understand people better because it's removing time and distance, that you can connect with more people, but that it's a balance, that it truly is, that you have to limit, and it's you can't replace face-to-face. But when time and distance and safety are an issue, these tools are great to use to connect with people, but you cannot replace that face-to-face. And so we've been fortunate, knock on wood, to date, but it's really just about not making it say no, 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 because they're going to want it more, but just kind of walking them through scenarios before they happen. Hey, it's fine. We're going to let you, you can go on Instagram. We think we trust you. You can handle it. But what's going to happen, this is going to happen to you is when people start posting pictures of a party that you weren't invited to, how are you going to handle that? So instead of dealing with that in an emotional time when it does happen, try to ask it before it occurs, when you can deal with it in a non-emotional state. And now again, these are just tips that give you a better chance, but we don't live in utopia, so sometimes things are going to happen. So it's just really about working as a team rather than just like, I'm going to tell you what you can do. Let's work as a team to collectively figure out what's best for everybody. I love that. Practicing it before it happens, you know. Yeah. And the other thing too is that they have sleepovers. This is really hard to do because you don't want to be the uncool parents. They're like, hey, sorry, Kelly, but here in this house, once it hits 10 o'clock, the phones charge down here and they're in this area, you can't access them. Oh, I have no issue being the uncool parent. None at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that. I don't have that drawback. Yeah. I'm all in for uncool. I'm very used to it. <laughs> um, finally, before I let you go, if you know this, this episode is going to be released. It's going to be one of the first ones that's released in the new year. And there's going to be a lot of people out there who have some big goals they want to kick next year who... You know, the past few years, there's been roadblocks and a lot of stuff happening. And I can already feel everybody kind of going, right, next year, next year is my year. What one thing, if I was going to change one thing, if I had a big goal I wanted to kick next year and I wanted to focus on it and get it done, what's the one thing that I should change or put into play that's going to give me the best chance of getting that done? The science shows, write it down and share it. Share it with a friend that's going to hold you accountable. When you do that, you go from 7% chance. If you write it down and then share it, there's other steps involved. But if you do those two, it increases it over 50% chance you're going to get it done. And so that's the key is to share it. That's the hardest thing to do because now you're committed. And that person's going to hold you accountable. You're like, oh, no, <laughs> see, Julie, just, I told her I was writing a book. Or I told her I was going to run this marathon and now oh there she is at the supermarket oh god she's gonna ask me about this i'm gonna get you i'm gonna hold you accountable (laughs) (laughs) oh well eric thank you thank you so much for your time and for all of the work i said i've been an avid follower for nearly a decade now and your work just continues to go from world class to world class to world class so an absolute pleasure being able to unpack it with you today no, such an honor. I'm glad we're finally able to connect. This is so wonderful. And keep being a light out there. You're changing everyone's life. So so I love your journey. It's just a, an inspiration to all of us. So thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.